Well, good evening to the all-killer, no-filler, straight-up inspiration that is the early late-night review. Let's do this. Did you ever feel so bad Yes, good evening and welcome to the Early Late Night Review. Even if you're listening to this show in the morning or the afternoon, it's always the evening for us. Trademark. This episode is going to be a little bit different to what we'd normally do, in the sense that it doesn't have a guest, right? Which is a little bit weird, because normally we're all about the guests. Really, it's just about testing out the new, deep, rich and expansive audio equipment that I've bought. Hence the dulcet tones coming through the airwaves, like those weird cockroach things in Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan, and going straight into your ears to eat your brain, like they did with that Russian guy. Do you remember him? If you, look, if you saw the scene, you'd be scarred by it too. So anyway, in this episode, I'm going to be reading out a story I wrote on the internet. Uh, it became a little bit viral. Essentially, it's about the time I spent in bands in and around London trying but failing to make it in any way, shape or form into the music industry. It's going to be sliced, diced and spliced with music from the bands that I was in. But don't worry, you're not going to have to listen to three or four minutes of every song. It'll just be 30 second clips to give you a bit of context about the music. Also, for the first time, you may hear some adverts chucked in. Most of them not real, one of them real. Most importantly, the real one is from the excellent Partly Political Broadcast podcast. It's a beautifully put together and funny show that you really should check out. So are you ready with a warm milk and half a bottle of Hennessy? Then let's do this, motherfuckers. It's been well over 15 years since I was in my first band. It began a long road of musical frustration, failed endeavours and missed opportunity. These were real gigging bands that practised, had their own shitty songs and recorded their own shitty records. None of these bands now exist. Each band was commercially unsuccessful. Each band at one point was the great white hope that would unlock the door to creative freedom and emancipate me from office doldrums. Now before we begin, some disclaimers. Here's the bit where I say playing any sort of music is noble, creative and exciting. It is, but you already know that. Also add in the disclaimer that it's all about the journey and commercial failure rarely equates to personal failure. Also true. Nonetheless, consider this essay an expose, a confession, a cathartic sharing of the frustration experienced when your expectations don't match your reality. This is about what it feels like to be part of a sinking ship when everyone is blaming each other and no one wants to admit they're the shitty captain. I'll walk you through the bands chronologically as each defunctional group has a different lesson. Or perhaps it's the same lesson over and over. For anonymity purposes, I'll refer to the bands and sometimes people using acronyms and initials. This is the internet after all and I'm writing or talking about people who probably don't want to be written and talked about. Okay, ready? Then we'll begin. My first proper band, after my schoolboy punk power trio that would make you vomit out your ears if you heard us, was EOTN, an energetic ball of anger and dispute. The dynamics change with every band you're in, and this one was firmly based on animosity.
time She's in love with sex and blood Fucking up the sky All the noise is crucified She's in love, there's no denying She's in love with sex and blood Fucking up the sky art rock group which basically meant pretentious punk rock for music scene wankers it was put together by myself and my school friend tim we were both guitarists he also sang just about and we quickly fell into the groove of having arguments about everything he was by his own admission i'm sure a single-minded control freak but i begrudgingly admired his vision so i let him take the lead i was a metaller who just wanted some heavy cores and thunderous drums Consequently, the songwriting was pulled in two directions, both of us not yet proficient enough on our instruments to produce anything near what we wanted. Such is an artist's path. Tim regularly claimed no one did any work but him. I was frustrated at all the work I did do, but everyone still considered it Tim's band. The rhythm section, a girl bassist we'd met in Camden, and a male friend of a friend drummer, turned up each week to practice, but that was about as far as their interest towards the band went. To me, however... EOTN was my family, my gang. It sounds cheesy, but I was 100% dedicated to our cause. And we took it pretty seriously. Practice was frequent, and memory extends to cold rehearsal studios on industrial estates, and mile walks home with my guitar gear after catching two late night buses. ended up playing about 20 gigs and we recorded two EPs. We met a ton of other bands, some we became friends with, some we did more gigs with, some were aloof and bellends, mostly identified when they turned up with their manager, Reed, their mate or their dad. One band played at our club night and missed out on getting paid as they had no inclination to talk to us and left early. They were friends with Art Brute and were probably too cool. Another band thought they were Oasis and came to soundcheck in Kilburn with a ton of attitude and predictably their manager. When our drummer asked the lead singer what music he was into, he turned to him, shades on, and in a mank accent said, Just good music. What a prick. I wouldn't mind, but they had no interest in talking to us other than to chat up our bassist. 
that happened a lot actually it was a very male environment and i suspect looking back women had a harder time of it it was also the same gig when the prick swaggered off stage mid-song and had a pint nodding his head at the bar to his own band's music good music oh and uh, as a side note tim fell down the stairs after drinking the whole night other bands were occasionally impressive such as the young knives who went on to be quite successful and were very chatty in the hellhole that the bull and gate called backstage boy kill boy another charting act turned up just in time to play did their set at terminals and then left without a word to anyone another achiever yanis from foals played with us in his old band in brick lane they were seriously good he also didn't talk to anyone but i think he was cripplingly shy Tim and I ended up arguing on stage more than once. He couldn't sing, but he had a lot of passion. He was a unique and adventurous guitarist. I played the role of right-hand man and kept the band ticking when he had one of his many anti-social episodes and was difficult to reason with. I saw my role as the peacemaker, the glue. The band slowly disintegrated. So much for the glue. One gig, our drummer didn't bring his kit, we couldn't play, and he subsequently left slash was replaced the bassist too became disinterested and uncommitted after 18 months hard slog at this point tim had formed a side project out of general frustration that began consuming all of his time i felt he was cheating on eotn and i truly hated him for it our last gig was an outrageous drunken affair in islington that ended in a huge argument that evening after the row i woke up in a taxi en route to finchley with two mates both puking on the roadside a fitting end to a raging ball of energy that had to burn itself out sooner or later. Remember me with a misplaced fondness Remember me with the seats in your heart Remember me in the stroke against nature Remember me, so is the game stop! that being in a band with your mates was probably a bad idea. Lesson. After years of friendship, Tim and I no longer talked. I was too angry to care. My next group was formed through the internet. Awkward meetings in London pubs and even more awkward rehearsals paid off and WBW was born. Well, with my old schoolmate James on drums and my old schoolmate Anton bass. What could go wrong? We also bagged Aaron from an online music message board. He was a singing guitarist, a mild-mannered grungehead, I think I just made that word up, from Derry, who just wanted some heavy calls and thunderous drums. At last. 
We wrote well together, we got on well together, and he could sing. However, if you're reading this for band advice, I say this, trust your gut. James, the drummer, who didn't own a drum kit, nor did he see it necessary to practice the songs, was a consummate unprofessional. We stuck together, however, as he was the replacement drummer in EOTN and took my side when Tim finally peeled away. Yet, he wasn't exactly into this band. Apart from giving each song a unique one-off drum line per performance, he was regularly hours late for rehearsal. One time, we were due to record in Ealing Studios and we went to pick him up from King's Cross. He was to meet us after visiting a drum shop he subsequently couldn't find and in the pouring rain had a huge paddy fit and quit. Ant, as easygoing and talented as he was, soon followed after. Consequently, it took a while for WBW to get up and running. But get up and running it did. We got a great drummer, another school friend, and on the same message board we snapped up Emma, a talented female bassist with a great ethereal voice. It clicked. We churned out alt-rock like it was going out of fashion, which was quite lucky, as it was. WBW, we all got along well, really well. It was like the fucking Brady Bunch, I think you meant to say. It became a social thing, no iron fist dictatorship, more an autonomous anarcho-syndicalist commune where we took turns to act as the executive officer for the week. We drank together, sometimes all day in the pub after practice. We gigged and we recorded, but we moved at a glacial pace. Anger is an energy and we were all out. The engine had gone, and instead we were going for a nice row down the river. Very pleasant, but bands need drive. We continue with gigs in and around the London toilet scene, dive bars in the city, the Bethnal Green Community Centre, whatever was on offer. The most we ever got paid was £20, between the four of us, for a gig a promoter we were friends with put on. At one point, an odd guy named Paul wanted to be our manager, he approached us after a gig in the Cuban bar in Camden in his skin-tight jeans that were shrink-wrapped around his spaghetti legs. We'd put in a mediocre performance, but as luck would have it, all the other bands were dire that night. We looked misleadingly good in context. He offered us a gig in Shoreditch and invited us to what would turn out to be the strangest meeting ever in a pub, where he sat glazed-eyed and near-silent, only once inquiring how many fans we had. None, mate. We played his gig anyway. He followed us around a bit. He looked permanently like he was sniffing glue and befriended everyone in the band on Facebook. So this was the heady heights of unsigned management. During the initial stages of WBW, just before James quit, I auditioned for the lead guitarist role in a riot girl band we'll call TB. Lead guitarist 
sounds competent and accomplished. I was neither, but I went along anyway on a wave of grit determination. Tim's betrayal was quite a good ass-kicker when ass-kicking was required. Somehow, I got the gig. Angela was the level-headed, fiery-haired singer and guitarist who drove the band, hammering out pop jangles on an immaculate red Fender Jaguar, and was a tour de force on stage. After joining, we found out that Angela's girlfriend used to occasionally stay at my uni house with her then-partner. During this time, we had a house pet chicken that got kidnapped in the night from our garden. Long story, but that's the summary. Now, for some forgotten reason, everyone laid the blame at Angela's ex-girlfriend's door. I eventually got round to asking her if she'd stolen it. Turns out, she's either a very good liar, or she didn't do it. Being part of TB was the first time I got the chance to play outside London. It was in some Hertfordshire social club up the A1, just a dozen miles out of town and the audience was so different, warm, welcoming and appreciative that you'd turned up. They actually listened and clapped. In retrospect, London is a terrible place to be in a band. Lesson. There are too many venues, too much talent and the city is too big to have one scene. The Leeds Goth movement, the Manchester movement, these would never have happened in London, it's impossible. Also, Londoners, and I am one, are cynical shits. The greatest talents in the world flock to their doors, why would they go and see an unsigned band? I don't, and I was in one. Off the back of a much suspect distribution deal Angela had already firmed up, we ended up paying to record a whole album with the guy who did Block Party's early stuff. He was a nice bloke who lived in a warehouse in Hackney and he reminded me of Rob Newman. He had built a room within a room that served as a studio. It cost a bit, but the results were slicker than your average Joe's. Though, if you're interested in your instrument not being turned down so only dogs and psychics can hear it, try to be there when your band is doing the mixing. I was hoping for more of boom and crunch on the record, but the results were chart pop. I understand why, but the ego does take a kick. We also got to play a festival. This is a pathetic tale. It was the Why Not Festival in a quarry in the middle of the English country. Our friend's band played the Friday night to a packed, energetic crowd of hundreds. By the time we rolled up to our slot on Sunday afternoon, everyone, and I do mean everyone, had gone home. We played to approximately eight people and a whole lot of quarry. So, this is the heady heights of playing festivals. The band ended about a year after I joined. We played a local lady fest in Wales where we were incredibly well received. People danced and cheered, a rarity. We got invited back to the main festival, huge exposure. Some band members couldn't make the date. It was the final straw of frustration. I was called to a pub meeting to be told it was over. No album, no distribution deal, no band.
In reality, TB splitting up was good news. Being in two bands was not and is never going to be a long-term sustainable situation. Listen. It didn't work for Tim and it didn't work for me. So WBW soldiered on. Saying all this, I was in another couple of bands on the side anyway. One was an acoustic ramshackle band we'll call EV, led by my baritone-voiced mate Ed. We were a comedy band, no really, and mostly supported Ed's brother's much more po-faced and professional outfit when they did gigs. Give me an E, give me a D, give me a U, give me an A, give me an R, give me a D, give me an O. I was also in another band called Apologists. It's okay to give their name, you can't Google them. Apologists ended up lasting one gig at a house party on the same day Tim's band played the main stage at the garage. Luckily, I didn't care. Apologists were a melodic emo rock group that sounded a bit like a really shit version of the Get Up Kids. So society's lost there, I guess. Sometime after this, WBW was offered £1,000 to play as an AHA backing band. That's £250 each. Considering the most I'd ever got paid before was £40 at my own club night, we all jumped at the chance. After years of disillusion, getting paid to play music kind of felt like you were winning somehow, a bit of a victory. Emma, our bassist, had a boss at work who was itching to be Morton Harkett for a night, so threw money at us and paid for rehearsals. He booked cargo in Shoreditch for the gig and we played a transvestite night, serving as the karaoke-style entertainment. We did good as paid employees. Emma's boss, however, was struck with a certain amount of stage fright and Morton Harkett he weren't. So, this was the heady heights of paid session work. Ultimately, the AHA gig killed the band. We were burnt out from an intensive period of practice. None of us had the energy to revisit the material we had waiting for recording, nor even swap back to playing the instruments we had previously done before the AHA metamorphosis. There was no ending chat as such, no pub meeting this time. WBW just quietly slipped away like someone you once met on Tinder and slowly stopped texting. Bands call this kind of breakup an indefinite hiatus. We chose money over creativity and it cost us the band. Lesson.
Sometime during the WBW meltdown, I put an ad on the internet touting myself out as a perfect guitarist for any motherfucking band who was in need. I got two calls. The first was a group made up of music college grads who sent me split chords and weird annotations to learn, and worse, told me to improvise around them when I arrived. It was, in short, a fucking disaster. I had no idea what I was doing. No bluffing it this time. Clear away the smoke, put away the mirrors. I was naked in front of these people. A pianist and a drummer who couldn't help but show their disinterest in continuing the audition. This, my friends, is a rite of passage. The terrible rehearsal where you question your decision to even dare pretend you play guitar. By the time the second song finished, I knew I had to get out of there. I began talking to them, non-stop as I packed away my stuff. They couldn't get a word in. I didn't want to hear a rejection or the awkwardness of someone trying to tell me it was not my time. I closed my guitar case, still jabbering, put on my coat and simply said, cool guys, see you later and left before they could respond. The perfect crime. Oddly enough, they never did get back to me, the muso wankers. The second call was from a guy who said they've got some songs but need a second guitarist. All acoustic, folky stuff. It's what I'd been playing in my bedroom for years. We met in a dank rehearsal studio on Black Horse Road one wet winter's night. The three of us muddled through some songs. I wrote the ending to one on the spot and things went well enough to stay together. The singer B had an amazing voice and looked like the kind of Eddie Vedder free spirit. Matt played guitar and led the band. You can always tell the leader. A week or two later, we got a violinist from Matt's work. She was a trained singer. Everything fell into place. Her voice with bees was melt in the mouth beautiful. With fragile guitars and soaring violins, it felt like the first band where everyone was actually good at their craft. We became LKS. Just about everyone that I know here has come to this conclusion first gig we did two women cried in the audience it was that bloody great total victory forever except it wasn't it was in fact downhill from there word to the wise playing quiet sensitive music live is a completely different ball game to hammering out punk rock through fender twin amps every drunk chat and clinking glass and ringing till puts you off your stride we tried a few different venues because of this issue charity events, 
churches and hospital lounges where we served as the mild-mannered entertainment as part of open days and local folk festivals. It was a world away from shitting in a broken bog in a dilapidated pub off Old Street two minutes before you're due to go on stage, yet still as unsuccessful. P.S. Thanks for the memories, Catchbar. Then things started to get skewed. As I was falling in love with the simplicity of our trad folk sound, Matt's tenacity saw him pulling us towards experimentation and discord. It was exactly where I didn't want to go. Musical differences are gonna get you. In part, his ideas were total genius. In another, mad. He had a vision and leadership like Tim all those years ago, but the more we experimented, guitar pedals, electronic percussion, distortion, the more we lost the ability to make women cry. In fact, they stopped crying altogether. I came home from a month's holiday, ironically resolving on the plane to dedicate every last moment to the band and escape my systems analyst job forever, to be told we were ditching the violinist and we were now recording an album, which we hadn't even written, with a sound engineer who lived in B's house. It all started spinning out of control. I came under frequent pressure to perform better under the studio's red light. Well... I say studio, but it was actually this guy's cramped bedroom, which barely contained his megalomaniac ego. My neurotic reaction to this criticism led me to practice endlessly at home and develop an RSI. Still no let up. No one was explicitly spiteful, but the environment had turned deeply toxic. I was unhappy, and every one of us felt under pressure from the sound engineer, who had gone from a passing hello in the kitchen to a full-blown Steve Albini with a control freak issue. Anyway, after getting another email about recording quality, I quit. I felt so let down with myself, yet it was only then I realised how unhappy I had become. It all turned into a huge chore. Everyone must have felt the same. We'd gone from simplistic and beautiful to complicated and ugly in a few short months. I distracted myself from the negativity by concentrating on how sellable we were and my advancing age, in band years at least, made me feel like this was the last grasp at success, else it would be office work forever. Working hard in a band is necessary, but I now realise you don't have to crucify yourself for your art. Lesson... Yeah, you know. Think we're over? Not yet, I'm afraid. It seems that whatever band you next venture into is a rebellion of the one you've just left behind. By this point in time, Tim was living with a girl from his now not-so-new band and they were expecting a baby. His band was winding down. I had nothing to rally against anymore. The rivalry was over because we had become adults. Because of this, and after the perfectionist hell of LKS, I put together a band with LWBW singer Aaron that was out-and-out heavy rock and roll. Aaron went on drums and we ended up becoming a stoner rock outfit called CS.
I'm not going to lie, playing this kind of music felt amazing. Also, there was no escaping the fact that we were all advancing in age. This happens. You're at the cutting edge of young bands one minute, the next you're worrying about a project at work, and all these bands' kids have floor toms in and odd tight trousers. And there it is. You're obsolete. So we embraced it. Stoner rock is the only genre in which you're allowed to get fat, be old, dress in a shit metal t-shirt and still be considered cool. In fact, the fatter and older you are, the kind of cooler you are. Also, it's ace fun to play. We got Ant back as lead guitar from the early days of WBW and a superb singing bassist from the internet called Rob. Ah, Rob. He was driven yet frequently cantankerous but also had moments of fun, understanding the self-mocking vibe of the band. Also, he could play the bass like a demon. We wrote a bunch of tight, heavy songs together, quicker than the time it will take you to read this story. Or listen to it. Yet, the older you become, the less people have time for this shit. Rehearsals were regularly cancelled or moved due to family or girlfriends or wives or work. Regular became irregular, and one year on, we were playing the same songs. We did a couple of gigs... The second one, a dedicated metal night, was immense. People headbanged like it was the 90s and actually appreciated the art of distortion. The other gig was in Luton. Around this time, it all got too much for Aaron and he left. He was only meant to fill in on drums anyway. So we went through a spate of auditioning new tub thumpers until we ended up with a giant Polish man who loved weed, booze and was the nicest guy you will ever meet. He worked in a tedious job and only cared about making music. Snap. For most of that time, Rob had been putting together a side project, partly out of frustration at our slow progress. Uh Uh-oh. I've seen this before. Slowly he put a band together until they were ready to gig, then exactly at that moment announced he was quitting CS. Motherfucker, I knew it. Remember when I said two bands is always an unsustainable situation? Well, shit. Call me a genius. We muddled on for a good few months more. Song changes, line-up changes. I wouldn't let this band, the only one I truly had fun in, disappear because someone pulled a Tim. Still, it turns out you can't hold on forever. We had to rewrite most of the songs to remove Rob's bass lines. We had to get new vocals and new lyrics. We had to meet up once every two to three weeks rather than six weeks. Look, there was no rescuing it. I quit the band at the beginning of 2016 in a burst of determined change. was gutted. So that's it. Approximately 17 years with nothing to show for it apart from some terrible recordings of this story. This, my budding, eager musical friends, is the reality of being in bands. 
you don't get laid, you don't get paid, and you don't get signed, and you don't get no satisfaction. Think I didn't want it enough, or that this won't be your story? Well, tell that to the 200 odd bands I crossed paths with, who you'll never hear about again. Tell it to the same faces I saw in the toilet circuit scene, on and off for years. Tell it to yourself in a decade. But, don't be dismayed. Do it for the experience, it's honestly great. But anyone who works at it for all those years and then says they're not even a tiny bit bitter about not getting signed, or even recognised for their efforts, is a liar. Then again, we all lie to ourselves. It makes life so much easier. So perhaps it wasn't my fault after all. Maybe I can still blame Tim. Talking of which, Tim and I are now kind of friends again. We even started a new band together in 2015. We auditioned a bunch of people, but he said no to all of them. Never changed him. I called it a day before we got in too deep. Here's another truth. I'm at an age now where I'd rather have my old friend in my life than yet another shitty, shitty EP. Are you a man, but you're turned off by monster trucks? Have you ever watched the bridges of Madison County? Have you forgotten how to scratch yourself? If so, talk to your doctor, because you could be one of the 10 million men suffering in silence from a condition known as menopause. Menopause afflicts men over the age of 40 and is one of the leading causes of depression, the loss of manliness, and the popularity of movies starring Owen Wilson. But there is hope. Girly Man No More. Girly Man No More has been scientifically and clinically proven to increase manliness. Talk to your doctor to see if Girly Man No More is right for you. Girly Man No More should only be used as directed by your physician. Possible side effects include death, sudden loss of limbs, temporary disembowelment, rage, clammy hands, hairy palms, hearing voices, busy signals, extreme attraction to squirrels, and fear of elevators. Girly Man No More is not for men who are pregnant or who may become pregnant. Do not take Girly Man No More if you have hands or if you are currently taking any other medicine. So talk to your doctor and call now for a free trial. Girly Man No More. Also available in a topical cream. But that's just wrong. Rolex presents a wild journey into the wormhole at the Wynn and Encore Hotel in Las Vegas on December 21st through December 25th. Ever wanted to go back in time to your favorite era or see what the future will be like? Now you can. Come experience real-time machines with our special guests, Stephen Hawking, George Lucas, Christopher Lloyd, and more. Buy your tickets at www.wormholeconvention.com or call 1-800-THE-WORM. Hey, you. Do you like politics? No, of course you don't. Absolutely no one does. Politics is even less fun than that board game with the pegs. You know the one. Little pegs, little tiny multicoloured pegs. No one liked it. Yeah, that one. Exactly. 
The problem is, politics affects absolutely everything, from that game with the little pegs to your favourite cheese or what poncho to wear when it's humid but cloudy, all the way to less important stuff like education, health, affording to live and how many times you break your TV swearing at it because the Prime Minister has said something awful again. I'm Tina Duyeb, despite all of my efforts, and every week I waste away my Mondays to bring you the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that looks at politics with a dirty side eye and then makes a ton of jokes about it before interviewing a different, genuinely clever guest each week who can actually explain it, and then just when you're sick of crying at the horror of everything, throws in jokes again. Phew! From your Brexits to your Trumps to your global crisis to your economies to your whatever the hell happy slapped uncooked dough man Boris Johnson has said this week, subscribe and listen to Partly Political Broadcast on the podcast app of your choice and it will all be explained. Unlike that game with the pegs. You know the one. You know the one with the little, with the little coloured pegs. Oh, it's such a stupid game. Partly Political Broadcast is out every Tuesday, ready to be fired into your ears like an unwarranted North Korean missile. So that's it. If you stuck with us, thanks very much. It's been a little bit of a different format. The audio quality is higher, but we obviously don't have a guest or anything. It's just me warbling on in your ear. Very quickly, just to say, do go and have a look at the Party Political Broadcast podcast, which is well worth a listen. He puts the show together beautifully and um, makes this look like a big shower of shit. Thanks very much for sticking with us. Have a great 2018. I'm sure I'll see you in the next episode. And by see you, I mean hear you. And you'll hear me. I won't hear you. Um, I've been me. You've been you. Good night.
Seven minutes. Three minutes, 40. Yeah. Hi.